Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect with Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as an investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey, good morning. How are you guys doing? Hey, what up? Hey, good morning. How are you? Doing good. You guys have a good weekend? Mm-hmm. Welcome back, Ryan. Thank you. I know the, ba- the band is back together. <laughs> After a couple of consecutive weeks of one of us being out. <laughs> yeah, it was it was good. It was good. We uh in New England at least, it's finally cooling off, it seems, which is good. Yeah, it's been beautiful. Hopefully it stays that way for a little while. And I I don't mean to be the bearer of tidings, uh bad tidings for you guys, but here in, in uh in northern New England, we are seeing some leaves turning colors and actually even starting to fall because of the uh dry conditions. Wow. <laughs> uh, enjoy it while we can. But uh what do you guys think? Should we kick off? And- yeah, no, let's let's jump in because I know we have quite a bit to cover today. One of the things we heard a lot about last week um, in the news and on crypto Twitter um, was, you know, the, the Treasury essentially coming out and sanctioning um, Tornado Cash. Um, and so, Jason, do you want to just kind of give us an overview of what exactly happened and, you know, what we're kind of hearing um, as a result of this? Sure. So many folks may not be familiar, but the Treasury Department has a component called the Office of Foreign Asset Controller, OFAC. And that OFAC entity came out and designated a crypto mixing service, Tornado Cash, uh, to the specially designated nationals and blocked persons list. And what that means is, it seems for the first time that OFAC has sanctioned a software protocol. Really, when you dig into it, it seems that they've blocked the URL address or sanctioned the URL address, as well as some Ethereum smart contracts. And this is sparking a lot of uh, debate and a lot of concern in the crypto community because they have seemingly haven't sanctioned software in the past. But other folks are even looking at this and questioning, is it even possible they can do this? Is this under their their purview uh, or is it potentially an overreach? And I think we'll have a lot to understand as the weeks unfold. But we've seen articles and positions being taken by entities such as Coin Center, uh, who is on the side saying that they believe that this is perhaps uh, an overreach in terms of the application to smart contract addresses. But we haven't actually seen this type of sanction for uh, technology before. But we have seen OFAC sanctioning other crypto mixers in the past. And one recent example was a crypto mixer called Blender, where they sanctioned that entity earlier in May. I think one of the key differences is with Blender, there is an entity that's controlled by a person or a group of people. So it makes sense and it's consistent with OFAC's prior sanctions around entities and persons. But the difference here is Tornado Cash is 
open source software and it's a protocol that's out there. So I think I'm avidly reading as much as I can around the topic. I know a lot of people are debating. Uh, we obviously support OFAC uh, ensuring that there are <coughs> rules in place to prevent things like money laundering or terrorism financing. So we're not certainly taking any type of position on whether or not this is good or bad. We're just trying to find out, is this in fact uh, an application that we need to be thinking more about for other DeFi applications? And Parth, I, I know you have been working on this. I mean, let's be honest, this is a privacy tool. And this is what a lot of people are questioning is, how can we sanction a privacy tool when in other cases, privacy tools that are good used for good purposes or, or not good purposes are not sanctioned? So it seems like it's a very uh, gray area. Parth, just before we jump into that, maybe let's just take a step back for, for those who are listening and don't necessarily know what Tornado Cash is and how it works. Maybe just a minute on that, just so that folks are, are you know have that context. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so just to level set, Tornado Cash is a service which uh, disconnects cryptographically from a deposit and a withdrawal. So Tornado Cash uses uh, a technology called zero-knowledge proofs uh, which get generated that prove that you are entitled to X number of ETH without revealing your input, right? So, uh, so essentially it's just a, it's a bunch of smart contracts, uh, which were controlled by a DAO. It had a few active contributors, but at the end of it, Tornado Cash is a bunch of smart contracts, which are deployed on Ethereum and, uh, smart contracts are immutable and they can still be used. Right. Um, so, so that's the level setter for what Tornado Cash is. And uh, I know Chainalysis did a report which stated that uh, close to 11% of crypto in Tornado Cash was basically done by bad actors. So that was stolen cryptocurrency. But at the same time, there is around 70% of the use of Tornado Cash as a mixing service, which had uh, legitimate use cases, which are many. And I can, I can briefly talk about what use cases uh, are sort of relevant where you might possibly need a mixing service. So for example, if I'm buying a, a t-shirt on Open Bazaar, So I think the OG crypto folks would remember what Open Bazaar is. Uh, check it out if you haven't heard of Open Bazaar. It's, uh, it used to be an open source project, but it's, it's no longer uh, uh, active. And so if I'm buying a t-shirt on Open Bazaar and I do not want to tell my buyer my entire transaction history or my wallet, I would use a, a privacy layer or I would use a mixing service. Um, or at the same time, if I want to donate crypto uh, anonymously, um, I can do that by using a mixer service. Or if I have been fully doxxed, if people know what my public address is, and if I still want to use my crypto uh, in various ways, in that case, I would require a certain level of privacy. Um, so those are some of the use cases. Uh, and I know there are more, but those are some of the use cases, which, uh, which is where you might need a mixing service like Tornado Cash. And important to note, right, that just because you know you use Ethereum uh, that is pulled out and your address gets flagged doesn't mean you can't move that Ethereum if it's you know digitally native if it's just Ether. But then the ability to actually interact with decentralized applications, well, they're all now starting to say we should comply, you know, with regulators so that regulators don't come after our application and shut us down. So we should be regulatory compliant. And of course, centralized exchanges to be able to then move your assets there, they won't accept those assets. And so it's not that if it's a digitally native asset, it can't still be moved. It just becomes basically flagged and you, you're a, a black market uh, you know, Ethereum address effectively. 
So I think what's like what I find really interesting about this is so this is obviously the first time that they've they've done something like this, right? And I think like one of the parallels that I look to is around autonomous cars. And you, you, so you're essentially having, again, a robot or code doing the driving for you. And if something bad happens, it creates an injury or something. Where does that liability lie? I think like there's a lot of similarities here. I think the difference though is with the, the manufacturer and the development of those cars, there's usually a centralized entity behind that. Whereas this is a decentralized group of people um, and also, right, this is open source. So one of the things that I, I find really interesting is like, in theory, you could do a lift and shift on this code and spin up Tornado Cash 2 and have a very similar function that's able to provide. So like, I guess in terms of the effectiveness of these sanctions, it's going to be a very hard thing to track and, and to continue to monitor and to the extent that it's it's necessary. I guess I should ask the question, can you take the the open source code associated with Tornado Cash and spin up a parallel instance? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, I think the sanction pretty much says, and I have to double check this, but it says Tornado Cash or Tornado Cash-like mixing services. So I think if you have similar code or a similar smart contract, which mentions the word Tornado Cash, I think I think it would still fall in the same category. Uh, but but at the same time, so in my my speculation is that Tornado Cash, from a technology point of view, especially this uh, smart contract would pretty much be dead since it's harder to mix if you have less number of Ethereum transactions going in because the whole idea of the mixing service is that you rely on a lot of transactions coming in so that you can mix them with uh, a lot of other transactions and then uh, spit them out. I completely get the idea of how uh, you could have a spinoff of Tornado Cash. Maybe it's not going to be called Tornado Cash. Maybe it's going to have a different set of smart contracts, but a similar mixing service uh, could be still, uh, uh, could be people could spin it up and mm -hmm. use it. That has different characteristics in terms of how it functions, right? So then how do you separate something like Tornado Cash from a network like Monero, right? That's privacy focused. Is there then, you know, do you draw that logic forward and say there's then an issue with a privacy focused chain like Monero? Or if Ethereum or Bitcoin decided that they really did want to work on integrating privacy on the base layer, does that then you know bring a, a target on the backs of privacy focused networks or networks that decide they want to focus on privacy on that base layer rather than you know just applications or smart contracts on top of the base layer? That's a fantastic question. And I don't think any of us have like we don't have the answers for it. <laughs> Uh, I think that's a really fair point. I think there is also a need to have uh, privacy at its core at the base layer, at the protocol level. And uh, I'm yet to see a good privacy blockchain which enables smart contracts. And even though I know there are some in the works like, like Aztec or Oasis, but I think we don't fully value privacy as much as we should. Jack, to, back to that question. We don't know, as Par said, but we're going to have to monitor this. I think there will be a lot of privacy advocates who put a lot of energy into this, I would expect that we'll see, if nothing else, more dialogue and hopefully improved clarity because a lot of folks are reacting to this tornado cash sanction with very conservative approaches in how they're applying uh, appliance controls within their own environments. I think that is a conservative thing to do. I would also just add that privacy is not illegal. And this is one of those things where I don't think that OFAC sanction this intends to imply that privacy is illegal, but that's a lot of the debate that I'm seeing is people advocating for maintaining the ability to have privacy, which I personally think is a good thing. 
I think there's a balance that needs to be struck. And hopefully the regulators, uh, not just within the U.S., but around the globe can come to some solid guidance. And we as an industry are able to continue to operate with known, known rules and without fear that something that has happened at some point in time in the past could affect your ability to, to have future transactions. I think that's one of the bigger concerns I've seen online in the past week is people questioning, hey, I had a transaction that was associated with Tornado Cash two years ago. It was a legitimate transaction. Do I have to be worried about something now? And the yeah. fact of the matter is we, we don't yet really know. And a lot of people are speculating. And that's the key, right? Because as Parth highlighted, you know, there are very legitimate reasons why you would want to use, you know, a service like Tornado Cash to preserve your privacy, right? Um, and I think this is actually a really good segue. Um, I know Parthi spoke a little bit about it. Um, but as a result of this, we saw, um, you know, a, a couple of waves of dust attacks happening, right? What happened there? I think it, it aligns directly with one, one of the reasons why you may want to preserve some level of privacy with your wallet addresses and the funds that you hold. It's true. So for folks who don't know what a dust attack is, it's uh, it's essentially a situation where some entity delivers value to different crypto wallet addresses that essentially haven't been anticipating these assets. So think about spreading dust around an ecosystem. In this context, some entity or entities have been taking 0.1 ETH worth of value and sending them to a number of known wallet addresses or wallet addresses that are associated with high profile public, uh, public people. So we've seen communication that uh, this 0.1 ETH dust attack has impacted athletes, talk show hosts, crypto executives, and even crypto exchanges themselves. And what it really means is that people don't have the ability to prevent an unwanted asset from being deposited into their Ethereum wallet address, or for that matter, any other blockchain address, if it is public and permissionless. So we have talked in the past about sort of the counter to this, which is the black hole problem. You know, you might send an asset to an address and not be able to recover it. Well, in this instance, you cannot currently prevent an asset from being deposited into your address and possibly bringing you into this mix of uh, uncertainty. You know, can I use my Ethereum wallet address if I've received 0.1 ETH that was sent via a Tornado Cash mixer? So I, I know there's a lot of questions around this as well, but I think it does highlight there's, there's opportunities to try and improve controls about what you can and cannot take into your wallet. But as of now, you you really can't uh, prevent somebody from quote unquote dusting your wallet address with some uh, some value. This happens with airdrops today as well. So you might receive some unwanted token through an airdrop because your address is out there. So I know there's a lot of different opinions on it, but um, Parth, I'm interested in, in your take too, because I know you and I have talked a little bit about this in the past. No one's advocating for a, a dust attack and no one's saying that this is necessarily a, a good thing, but you do have people out there who might question, hey, I just got some unexpected ETH. Is this good? Is this like a dividend? Did I do something else? They may not realize where it came from. Yeah, that's a really fair question. And I think you don't have a lot of optimal solutions to prevent that. Um, I think if we may remember that uh, two years ago, uh, Vitalik, uh, and, and I think this is like a really uh, popular marketing idea by like a lot of these protocols, but what they would do is, so Shiba came out and then the Shiba developers pretty much sent a bunch of Shiba coins to Vitalik's address because it's publicly known. And then that sort of pumped the price because 
uh, people said that, hey, you know what, Vitalik also owns Shiba coin, right? And so, so you're right, there is no like optimal solution to a dusting attack as of now. People need to understand and monitor their wallet addresses to figure out what is coming through. We, we often hear that not reusing addresses is a way to try and increase your privacy and your security. In this context, it seems, again, that this, this type of attack reinforces that strategy, but it can be complex and it's hard for people to understand what assets do I have? Where is it? You need to be really engaged. So are they, so so I guess just to kind of summarize, right? The concern here is if you received dust from a tornado transaction, now your wallet is associated with that smart contract. In theory, you could now have a problem on your hands at one point and you were not involved with the transaction at all, but you you did receive you did receive ETH from Tornado Cash, right? So I guess the question and I'd be curious to get your thoughts are, is there anything you can do to prevent this from happening? One thing is that it's actually pretty easy to uh, identify dusting attacks. So like in this specific scenario where uh, this person or this group of people were pretty much sending 0.1 ETH uh, of, of tainted money, it's kind of easy to identify what, uh, like that this is a legit dusting attack. And so you can pretty much uh, get a license from from OFAC and, and get yourself delisted. But again, it's a it's a lot of paperwork, and it's it's definitely it has a it has its own share of complications. I I think it also brings us to the conclusion that this is not the last that we will hear of this topic for sure, right? You could you could draw fundamental inconsistencies with how this is the end solution, right? To to just blacklist addresses or you know, whatever this ends up being. Like if people can just then send assets to somebody that they don't like because that person, you know, they know that that's their public address and then they can get them frozen. Well, that, that's not a long-term solution to, you know, this potential problem, um, you know, that the government is seeing, uh, but obviously, yeah, there's a lot left to be written of this story. <laughs> and guys, we hear people ask the question all the time. Um, can I actually ring fence that value and separate it away from my other asset components? Like in Bitcoin, you have different UTXOs hypothetically, you can just leave that UTXO that's associated with a dust attack and, and not interact with it. Whereas uh, in the Ethereum space, it's more account-based. So Parth, can someone separate that value or is it commingled with the other uh, assets in the account or in the wallet address, excuse me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so technologically, Ethereum has an account-based uh, smart contract layer, which basically means the short answer is no. However, for Bitcoin, you have a UTXO model. So in that case, you can do that. And, and UTXO, for people who don't know, means an unspent transaction output. So each uh, outcome from a transaction is identified uniquely. Yeah. And, and quickly in five seconds, what does ring fencing mean? I, I don't know what that means. Oh, sorry. Uh, it means almost like you can segregate it. So ring uh, fence is a colloquial term. You'd have bad assets alongside good assets that could be used and interacted sitting in the same address commingled together. Gotcha. All right. Sounds good. Do we want to talk about the news of the week? The merge is coming. Yes. Yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth. I think it's a good transition. So we've been talking about it for a long time. So close. You could almost taste it. So what's the, what's the latest with the merge sheet E2.0? So the big news is that the merge is, is close. It's probably a few weeks away. So if you guys remember, in June, you had the Robster and Testnet merged. 
uh, July was Sepolia, and then the last testnet to be merged was Gorli, which successfully happened last week. Um, so it's also important for users to know that there are two layers on the Ethereum stack, the consensus layer, which is moving to proof of stake, but the execution layer, which has all your NFTs, all your DeFi, all the games is pretty much um, untouched. Now that we are so close to the merge, I think it's important for us to talk about risks and challenges. Uh, I do have a few risks outlined for the after effects of the merge, but I want to get the most generic one um, out, which is that all of the merge code is really new. Uh, it hasn't been fully stress tested on a value chain since test nets do not have any value. And so um, if I'm a bad actor, if I'm a bad guy who knows a potential vulnerability, I would wait until the merge and then execute my plans. So even though there's been a lot of testing, but you still never know what can go wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I suspect that in, in, in some cases, even if there is a bug, uh, the hedge against this new untested code is basically client diversity. So you have all of these nodes running different kinds of softwares in different languages but they all pretty much do the same exact thing, which is to propose and validate blocks. So in case one client like Prism goes down, there are five others to fall back to. Uh, what, what do you guys think about risks and uh, potential challenges? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, and I guess to borrow Vitalik's analogy, like of swapping out the engines on an airplane that's that's in flight, right? You can rehearse that over and over and over again. But at the end of the day, there's still going to be some risk associated with doing that in, in production. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's definitely worth kind of noting that there is going to be a fair amount of risk because this is a fairly seismic shift to the network, how the network maintains consensus. I think it's also worth noting just kind of to counterbalance that. Yes, it hasn't been done on a value chain, but it has been done on test nets. And there are a lot of really bright minds looking at this code. It's not like they're just doing this without very little planning and preparation. I mean, we've been waiting for this, like I you know, alluded to earlier, for several years while they've kind of done all of the appropriate due diligence and development work that needs to happen in order to support it. So like there's risk, but there also has been quite a bit of planning and preparation that has gone into this, right? So I think you know we, we need to give credit where credit is due. And that's certainly something that I would like to cover. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is like a monumental, uh, like this is monumental work, and it's probably it's probably going to be one of the biggest uh, events in the in the history of Ethereum. But I, I do want to talk about one challenge, which I think, which I speculate personally might be a uh, might be really tricky, uh, which is that there are a lot of projects which have ETH corresponding to real world assets. So you have ETH mapped out to like real world things. So for instance, like I what? Have yeah. So for instance, I could have real estate against my ETH or I could have a piece of art uh, against ETH. And so when there's a hard fork, when you have two chains, ETH pretty much gets duplicated. And so these applications and these projects will have to really make sure that they recognize the right ETH uh, when there is any sort of interaction. That, in my opinion, is going to be the biggest risk um, after the merge. What you're saying is if you had a token that represented a fractional share in a vintage Ferrari or a fine piece of art, right? Now you, in theory, right? If, if there, once the fork happens and, you know, one thing that I don't think we really touched on is, you know, there is a subset of, of miners that are saying they're going to continue to support proof of work Ethereum, right? So in theory, that token will live on and you'll also now have the proof of stake version of that token. And so it's going to basically be on the projects that issued these tokens to make sure that there aren't like double redemptions happening. That's a really interesting kind of 
risk, right? Um, do we know Parth like the the dollar amount associated with like real world assets issued on Ethereum? No, I don't think there's an exact number. I I personally know close to five or six projects which are pretty popular. So which basically have um which where you can pay, pretty much take loan on real world assets against your ETH. Uh, but I I don't know mm-hmm. the dollar amount. But it's significant, right? Because like there was a while there where it felt like everyone was tokenizing everything, right? On Ethereum. And so we know of buildings, we, you know, like I, I use the Ferrari analogy that that actually happened, right? Paintings certainly happen. Um, and, and, and and other forms of financial instruments too, right? Um, you know, Jason, you probably could speak a little bit more to that, but, um, you know, tokenization on Ethereum is a popular concept. And so all of these kind of real world assets or financial instruments are impacted by this. I would just point out again, it, it's probably well known, but there is an Ethereum proof of work chain that will continue after this. And it's called Ethereum Classic. Yeah, you know, there was a right, full true. <laughs> from you know a few years back. So I, I saw an article earlier, uh, I think it was today, maybe yesterday, where one of these, at least one of the minor entities that wants to continue with Ethereum proof of work after the proof of stake conversion is saying that they are trying to undo the difficulty time bomb. So they're basically prepping to have this other hard fork. So I think there's a lot of technology that that needs to go into it. There's questions about how much computing power would be allocated to any continuation or persistence of the current, what we know as Ethereum. Um, And I do think you raised some great points around the the protocols or the asset uh, in those entities that interact with the assets needing to know which one to go with. But I also think about it from that context of, from a, a typical user, how will they know? You know, if I don't have my value on some centralized exchange and I have it through a, a self-hosted wallet, I may now get dropped another token. How do I know which one to spend? You know, like they, I think they want to use a different um, acronym for it. But at the same point, what will be more valuable? I, I think back to when we had the Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash hard fork some years ago. And the question is, okay, if there is enough power uh, behind this chain, will we see uh, centralized exchanges start to offer that as another uh, investment option or an asset that can be transacted upon? Without a doubt. I guess the, the TLDR on this is we hope it goes well. I think everyone is really rooting for, you know, a seamless, a seamless transition here. Maybe not say everyone. I think that might be a little, <laughs> a little broad, but you know, most people, right? Because you know, there's a lot of value at risk. And to your point, Parth, like this is a huge technological feat that if they're able to successfully do it, um, will be a, a major milestone for the network and a major accomplishment. But it's also worth noting that when you're doing something this major, there are kind of inherently risks associated with doing that, and it's important to understand what those risks are as we approach the the actual merge. Yeah. What one point which I would also like to make is that um, I know we've we've spoken about how the proof of work may not get as much traction uh, as we think it might. And so uh, centralized stablecoin issuers like Circle have clearly stated that they will support the proof of stake chain only, Mm -hmm. which basically means a a big part of DeFi will also follow that. Um, Along with that chain link, uh, which is a a decentralized oracle, uh, and it pretty much provides um, data feeds for real world market prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it maps 95% of DeFi value enabled on the blockchain has also clearly stated that they would only support proof of stake. So I, my, my personal guess is that the proof of work chain might be active for, for a few weeks, months, but it's not going to 
uh, proof of stake with is the chain which will have most value. Well, and at the end of the day, right, it's where the majority of the value will go. I mean, it could the proof of work chain could live on in perpetuity, right? But it's it's where the majority of the economic activity is happening. That's you know the the golden measure. Yeah, if most of the network effects developers community right. moves towards one chain, it's it's hard to see, you know, the other chain gaining to sustain to sustain it, especially way. when you know this has been part of Ethereum's identity for so long. Right. You know, the over you know over two years. I mean, there was even mentions from Vitalik in 2015, prior to the, the launch of Ethereum, of the fact that you know they could move from proof of work to proof of stake someday. And then, of course, that discussion heated up and became you know the Beacon Chain in 2020. And so, Ethereum's identity is really rallied around this transition to proof of stake. So it's hard to see or make a, a really solid argument that the proof of work chain would outcompete this proof of stake chain. Yeah. The one last thing I would say, and this is one of the best things about being in, in the crypto industry is you're always in living history and you're, there, there is no chartered path. A lot of it is really just uh, building upon the giants of the shoulders that came, sorry, the shoulders of the giants that came before. And now the question is, uh, how much will we learn? How much will we look back on this to tell people about what we, what we experienced? And, you know, will it be a major success? Uh, we all hope that everything goes well, but at the same point, um, we're going to have a lot of learnings from this. Yeah. Yeah. There, there will be learnings. There'll be war stories. And, you know, to your point, Jason, we're living history here. So it'll be really interesting to watch, no doubt. So, all right, everyone, thanks so much for joining. Um, really appreciate it. Um, great discussion. It was great seeing you guys all back together again this week. Um, and we will, uh, we'll see you all next week. Have a good rest of your week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment, and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets, nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.